friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for being with us again this week, dear listeners. We have, we hope, a very good show for you. Tom Carroll, the superintendent of Boston Archdiocese Catholic Schools, is here with us. We'll be talking to him at the bottom of the hour. He gave some moving testimony last week to the Senate on a sneaky provision the Biden administration is trying to wrap into the budget deal, and that would adversely affect Catholic schools, especially early child care and pre-K programs. He'll be telling us all about that. But first, I have invited Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed, friends and colleagues at the Catholic Association, to have a team talk uh, after this whirlwind week that we've had with the Supreme Court justices finally taking up the case Dobbs versus Jackson, which could lead to the end of Roe v. Wade here in America. We'll be talking about some of the pivotal moments of the oral arguments and some of the issues that this has brought up. For example, what is what does a post-Roe America look like? We also want to talk about the way the media has slammed Catholic mom and new justice Amy Coney Barrett, especially on the issue of adoption. Thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. It's really great to have a team talk from the Catholic Association. Yeah, it's my first team talk, actually. I've only ever been on with you, Gracie, and it's my first with Ashley. Oh. oh. You were busy when I joined up. It's always a lot of fun. (laughs) And we're always very busy. There's always so much going on. And of course, these days, we're all very fixated on the big Supreme Court case, Dobbs versus the state of Mm. Mississippi. Just last week, it was argued before the Supreme Court. To say that it was electrifying the whole nation, I don't think is an exaggeration. Everyone's paying attention from whatever side they're coming at, at it because because of Roe v. Wade in 1973 and then Casey in 1992, they're like these deep fault lines in American culture. They changed so much of, of the way we relate to each other, whether it's uh, social or family, uh, sexually, politically, that uh, it's, it's amazing to think that maybe in a few months we're going to have to rebuild America after Roe. Yeah, I think that's right. And we're going to have to uh, really step up our efforts on the pro-life side to take care of women and children and families and make that possibility. I totally agree that, you know, we talk so much about division in this country. And I just think that the thing that divides us more than anything is this issue. And I think that's been so entrenched for so long because people don't have a voice. They don't have a say. And I think one of the biggest misunderstandings that out there is, you know, this idea of overturning Roe v. Wade. And and what it really means is actually just restoring a voice to American people to have a say in our lives. And, you know, I think sadly, one of the biggest fault lines, sub fault lines, if you will, is this idea that over here or a misperception that, you know, you have women over here and people who are not pro-choice over here when in fact, you know, nobody 
embodies the fact that that's not true more than you, Gracie. And, you know, you were out there on the steps in your white doctor's coat and wrote a brief, an amicus brief for the Supreme Court as a woman and as a doctor, testing to the fact that um, women are very much pro-life and and that even doctors like yourself are sort of witnesses to the truth of the humanity and the life of the unborn. Well, we always like to, to point out that science, science illuminates the truth, right? The truth about the natural world. And when you illuminate the truth, you you come closer and closer to the pro-life position, not the pro-abortion position, because it's a very simple scientific truth that unborn children are children. They're human children in, a, in an earlier stage of development. And that's the kind of thing that can't be glossed over or, or veiled by the pro-abortion side as much as they try. So science is definitely on our side. And it's true that outside the Supreme Court, the day of the arguments, the court steps were covered in women, many of them in white coats. And that's because it's also true that women are not, as we've been told by the other side, oh, well, you're a woman, you must be reflexively pro-abortion because, you know, you want your freedom from pregnancy. No, that's that's not true. Women, we women, first of all, we can have different opinions, even though we have ovaries and a uterus. But also we are people who are built to, to welcome children. We, we are nurturing. We are family-oriented. We're, we're in, invested in relationships, sometimes much more than men. So all those things make us naturally predisposed uh, to love our babies. And and so yeah. to... You'd, yeah, yeah. So to sorry, say... Sorry, you'd you'd mm-hmm. think that's an insult these days to say something like that, Gracie, what you're saying, all these beautiful words. I think people take it as an offense. Ashley, you were just talking about people feeling voiceless and that contributing to the divide. Do you see if it is overturned and states actually get to vote on these laws that will give people enough of a voice to maybe heal some of these divisions or do you think it's it's permanent and there's no going back especially what we've seen in terms of the op-eds that have been written this week well i think people will see very quickly that the sky is not falling you know there's going to be states that are going to enact abortion laws that are viewed as restrictive and then there's going to be states like new york which have already said even if roe v wade is overturned you can get an abortion for any reason up until the day before you give birth and so i think the first stage in healing is for people to see that all the lies and the hype that we've been fed, especially through the press, but really pumped out by the pro-choice, pro-abortion lobby are not true. That women can continue to flourish and that we can sort of take a breath and have calmer conversations about how do we protect life in the womb? How do we protect mothers? How do we create a culture where women who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy feel like they have real choices and support. So I guess I'm put me in the optimistic category that I don't think, I think it would be the beginning of a very long healing process. What about the political fallout? Because I've heard it expressed in different ways that maybe if Roe gets uh, struck down, that the the Republicans are going to suffer terribly in the midterms. What do you think, Ashley? You're, you're very much a D.C. person who's very clued into all these all this political ambiance. Yeah, I'm laughing because I just moved literally just outside the Beltway. So I'm no longer inside the Beltway. But <laughs> that being said, no, I think the answer to that is in the state of Virginia. So you had Texas pass this very highly unusual abortion law. Everybody panicked. The pro-abortion lobby said, this guy is falling, run chicken little. And this is going to be so bad for Republicans and for pro-life leaders. And then you had this huge 
win for a Republican governor and, and for the whole party in all different, you know, the, the state assembly in the state of Virginia. And I think it was kind of a little bit of like a shrug. They, they didn't buy the hype. And so I think that bodes well for the fact that or that suggests that the pro-abortion lobby is just blowing hot air when they say this is so bad for Republicans and Republicans should feel confident that they can both embrace their pro-life views and have a viable political future. Well, it's just another level of gaslighting. I mean, that's what the pro board's been doing all week. The headline uh, about the conservative justices lying to us all was so inflammatory. And this insistence that the pro-choice stance is the neutral stance. It really is. It's really it's crazy making it works. It's effective gaslighting. Yeah. Speaking of gaslighting, can we talk about oral argument? Because I feel like, you know, I can't I think it was maybe it was Justice Kagan who said something like, can this court survive the stench if Roe v. Wade is overturned? (laughs) Like, like total gaslighting this idea that if the court overturns this horrible precedent that's been dividing us and roiling the country for decades, then the court is going to be embroiled in controversy. When in fact, it's the opposite. It's this is the issue that has inflamed the court and really undermined its legitimacy. Yep. But can we also talk about Justice Sotomayor and Gracie, you wrote this op-ed in Newsweek that was so good as, you know, speaking as a doctor, but the absolute absurd anti-science sort of like medieval line of questioning that Justice Sotomayor gave where she compared unborn babies to brain dead people or corpses like what was she okay i felt so i felt sorry for her frankly because you know she has billed herself as a wise latina but it was so inane what she was saying and and also it was coming from from a place of deep political prejudice because she she gave herself away completely she wasn't asking she wasn't asking the solicitor general of mississippi explain to me how this you say the science has changed please explain this to me so i can understand her question was the science Science has changed. You know, she was implying that, well, she wasn't implying. She said that his, uh, the first thing the solicitor mentioned was fetal pain. She said that it was some eccentric fringe of doctors who believe that babies in the womb can feel pain. She couldn't be more wrong. She cannot be more wrong. Um, and, and, and even just a little bit of thought, or she could have just read my amicus brief, a little bit of thought would have explained this to her. For instance, when a baby is born at 22 weeks prematurely and is put into the neonatal ICU, there are no surgical interventions done on that child without anesthesia because at that age, at 22 weeks, they know that fetuses can feel pain. So if the baby can feel pain outside the uterus, the baby obviously can feel pain inside the uterus. You don't have to have a sci- an advanced scientific degree to figure that one out. So it was it was very b- sad about Sotomayor. And frankly, the saddest part was her strong political bias. It was also kind of laughable, sad. I don't even know how to describe it when she suggested that nobody's challenging that viability has changed. It's like, what what planet do you live on? Do you read newspapers? I mean, just scrolling through my Facebook, I would say once a month, I see some news story and they're often in mainstream news you know, news outlets because people, it's total clickbait. People love these stories. Like baby survives at 22 weeks, you know, tiniest baby, one pound baby goes home. And, and just like the week before oral argument, I saw in the New York times, this article about how the youngest baby to have ever been born is now 18 months was 21 weeks at birth. 
And, you know, the headline said something like astonishes doctors. And if there is anything that has been debated and contested and that science has shown is a totally moving target, it's viability. It was so strange to me, especially when she was coming or seemed to be coming from a position that usually is like, holds themselves out to be the pro-science side, the pro-medicine side, to question whether or not there have been any medical you know, developments in the last 50 years years? I mean, they happen every single day, just like the headlines are saying. I mean, in every branch of medicine and science, I mean, it happens all the time. It was just such a strange and bizarre line of pushback that she gave the Solicitor General. And, you know, I'll just give my own example. I had my first kid nine years ago, and at twenty, at the 20-week ultrasound, they were pretty confident about the sex organs, but like the baby kept moving. By the time I had, and they were right, they said it's a girl, she was born a girl. But then by the time I had my fourth baby, they could tell the sex of the baby from a blood draw at 10 weeks. Wow. That's just how quickly the technology and the science changed. And with, you know, no ambiguity, like there is a microscopic margin of error with ultrasounds. But, you know, and the... The 3D ultrasound was all the rage when my second was born and the fourth was done as a 4D ultrasound. The ultrasound has has changed the, our relationship as people as an American people. It's changed our relationship to the unborn because it has made them more and more visible, palpable members of our human family, as opposed to something hidden inside uh, a woman. Now we all see these beautiful pictures of these obviously very lively, very human little boys and girls <laughs> going on about their business trying to put on some weight before they come out. It's just changed American minds. And the, the court needs to take these changes in science, which I, I would summarize as being our ability to, to experience fetal development through ultrasound as a people. Also, the changes in viability, which have been tremendous since 1973, several weeks earlier since 1973, and also the science of fetal pain. So those are three very big categories. The Solicitor General of Mississippi referred to all three when he first started to answer Sonia Sotomayor, but she immediately you know, interrupted him and started talking about fetal pain. Poor lady. She knows nothing about fetal pain. I just want to say one last thing, too, about viability, which is, you know, I recognize that it's a term that has a sort of medical connotation. But, you know, I have a 10 month old baby and every time I'm like changing his diaper or feeding him, I just laugh at this idea of viability. Like, like as if suddenly when they're born, then they can just live by themselves. You know, right. like they, they're completely I mean, even, you know, throughout toddlerhood and and I just think or throughout toddlerhood that they you know kids continue to need constant help and supervision otherwise they would starve to death or fall off a cliff or you know die and it's just this absurd I feel like we need to radically rethink how we think about other humans think about our laws in terms of like the vulnerability that people have in the first, I would say, 10 to 15 years of their life, and then again later in life, and then for some people, it's throughout their entire life. Yeah, and we're so, dependent beings. I, I, think I, I actually, I know a good book about that. Sorry. I think that the, uh, I know what you're talking about. We have to bring that up, please. I think viability might have made more sense when viability meant that you would actually deliver the baby, and then the baby could be taken and plopped into someone else's arms. And, you know, survive on milk and diaper changes, right? When we talk about viability right now, we say, oh, a 21-week-old is viable. 
wait, are people stopping to think of what that means? The, the child is viable in a neonatal ICU taken care of by teams of people around the clock at a cost of millions of dollars. Uh, per child, yeah. many millions of dollars. So really all we're doing is we're taking the, this dependence, this beautiful, simple, natural, and vastly inexpensive dependency of a baby for with, f- to his mother um, that she's doing effortlessly in many, in many ways, right? I mean, I'm not, I've been pregnant. I know there's a lot of things that happen during pregnancy that are, that are complicated and, and, and sort of difficult. Um, but, it's, but it's a natural, uh, easy dependency compared to a neonatal ICU. We're transferring this, we're saying, oh, the child's no longer dependent on the mom. Well, now the child's dependent on this vast mechanism <laughs> to keep the child alive. It's really, a, there's, there, this is a very artificial line viability. And it keeps moving. And there's, is, I mean, Gracie, you would know, is there any reason to think it's not, it's going to stop? It's ever going to stop moving? Well, I, I think in the, you know, we always have these ideas of things that could happen in the future. Like we've had flying cars, right? And mm-hmm. and somehow they all keep happening. Like things are happening. And <laughs> so I guess nothing, there are no <laughs> limits to human ingenuity. So why not the artificial womb, right? Right. So I, I'm sure people are working on that now. And it could be one day that if a woman desires to not be pregnant anymore at six weeks, the baby can be transferred at huge, enormous cost to an artificial womb. <laughs> and then viability will be very low. But the, but the truth is that, like you said, Lee, uh, we are connected, dependent people all our lives. And that's something that abortion uh, as a legal means of severing that dependency it stains our entire culture because it says that we are not dependent when in fact there our dependency is is lifelong and it's something that can't be erased yeah and it pits us against each other i mean and in the case of abortion especially child and mother but that the way you're talking about how it affects the rest of us where i mean and then as ashley opened up with that great divides in between us and the things like this when we don't think of ourselves as interdependent it's very easy to sever any ties that would you know normally come about naturally between human beings i think it's been thinking about this especially you know over the last decade of having kids that's shaped my views on some other policies in particular paid family leave and i know that this is related to what we're talking about because we do have to think about a society in a post-Roe world where, you know, as, as the pro-life likes to say, abortion isn't just outlawed, but it's unthinkable. And it's the making it unthinkable part that I think, you know, we have to really be working on. And, and I think the pro-life movement has done an amazing job of, you know, building up and supporting these pregnancy resource centers. Um, but there's going to be so much more of that work because human nature never changes and there's going to continue to be crisis pregnancies. But reforming our adoption laws, but it's this idea of of vulnerability that really made me kind of come around, even though I'm fiscally conservative on the paid family leave issue, because I think it gets to the heart of like, what does society owe vulnerable families and, and, and women who, who can't support themselves financially through a pregnancy and then, or, you know, after having a child and, and the woman who makes $12 an hour working at a CVS who, who, 
you know, has to decide between going back to work 10 days after having a baby um, or losing the paycheck that would pay for the food to feed her baby. So I don't know, what do you guys, what do you think about, you know, the things that we need to be building up in anticipation of what is hopefully the overturning of these terrible precedents? I think you're right too about paid family leave. And I too have done a little bit of a shift and more in favor of it. I mean, obviously the people who are really vulnerable, um, really need it. But it's for any woman, any, I mean, you see partners at law firms that are going back to work at, at uh, and this is maybe not so much policy, but they're going back to work after six weeks of giving birth. They are, you know, are back to those kind of long hours and they're not, you know, they're not seeing their babies at all or their other children. And none of us, you know, no one has to be a stay-at-home mom or a work-from-home mom or a flex job mom. You can do whatever you want. But I think that corporate, the culture needs to change along with developing more, uh, efficient policies and a social network that supports mothers and families in need. I, I'm not 100% sure I, I, I get family paid leave as a, as a positive, but what I do worry about very much um, as a doctor is if we give up abortion as a people, it becomes unthinkable. We're not going to do the same with contraception, I don't think. I don't think we're, we're ready for that. Uh, as a culture, I am uh, personally, but I don't think we are as a culture. And I'm worried about contraception that is permanent or semi-permanent being used um, more and more early uh, by women are being being sort of put in the water in all schools. And this is a real worry to me because I have seen, I saw a couple articles recently about young women making themselves permanently sterile by choice at the ages of 18 wow. or 19. Permanently. Permanently as a lifestyle choice. Like you might choose to change your gender as if you could do that, but you might, you know, a 19-year-old deciding she's going to be, a not, she's never going to be a parent. And she's going to decide that at 19 and wow. going to get sterilized. So, Well, I definitely think there's an already ongoing push by the abortion lobby to shift towards medicated abortions. And then under that, I think there's a really deceptive effort to call a lot of those medications contraception and hmm. say that taking plan B is not an abortion. You just prevented a pregnancy. No, what you actually did was, in many cases, um, you know, take an embryo uh, and destroy it before it even had the chance to make it into the womb. But, you know, they play such a such a deceptive game with all of that. And I think women aren't aware of how IUDs, you know, if you truly believe that life begins at the moment of fertilization, which I, I get so annoyed by that phrasing, if you believe. Again, science is real. <laughs> like The science is eminently clear that that is the moment when an entirely new, unique set of DNA is created. I mean, I do think that the pharmaceutical industry is in many respects, you know, in the back pocket of the abortion lobby when it comes to, I think, deceptive messaging to women about what is preventative contraception versus what is actually just a abortion by a different name. Well, Ashley, can't you envision a dark world where the lack of abortion access, instead of, of, of taking us to a place where men and women are interacting sexually in ways that are more noble and more decent and more clean, um, instead of that, we go to a society in which you basically take, you have a chemical abortion once a month. We're already there. I mean, there's everyone's talking about the declining abortion numbers, and I'm wondering how much of it is because women are shifting away from hormonal birth control because they're finally waking up to the reality that it's so toxic, it's so bad for their bodies, that what it says on its FDA label is true about blood clots, strokes, cancer. Mm -hmm. So they're shifting to the latest fad, which is the IUD, which again, can 
be a monthly abort or medicated abortion. Yeah, the push for IUDs is outrageous. I mean, I actually still watch TV with commercials sometimes <laughs> because hmm. I'm that's I roll old school a little bit. What's I a commercial? You, it, it, it tells you <laughs> almost everything that you might like to buy or eat or I guess insert into your body because the IUD commercials are nonstop. It's like Mirena, I think, is the big one. And they're putting young girls, teen girls on them, and they're not disclosing the fact that they have a significantly high rate of ectopic pregnancy, which can be fatal for women um, and is always fatal for the baby. Um, And I see probably a weekly post on this blog I read of women who have had an IUD put in saying, help, is it possible I can still actually get pregnant on this? I I think I'm pregnant. And then everybody's like, run to the emergency room because it's probably an ectopic pregnancy. The sad thing is, is that what we really want, what we really want is a culture where sex is put back into that beautiful box of marriage. I'd like our whole culture to move towards that. I I think that us, uh, we as Catholics, as pro-life people, we have to keep that in mind. I, I know that we talk a lot about crisis pregnancy centers and I support them wholeheartedly. I read ultrasounds for them for free and and I love them. They do amazing work. But I think it's a cultural change that we're looking for, not just material support. A cultural change that I would love to see as a part of that is one that embraces and celebrates adoption as something that's beautiful. And instead, we've had the reverse, which is this weird effort that I'm sure is being promoted and pushed by the pro-abortion lobby that is trying to paint such an ugly picture of adoption. It makes me super sad. And I'm sure both of you as adoptive moms feel the same way. No one is ever trying to deny that there could be some trauma, especially if you've been adopted from foster care and maybe you suffered through some abuse or you remember living with your biological parents and now you don't. And there's a lot of things that can happen. There are also a lot of things that can happen to all of us. The fact that adoption in a lot of cases is a rescue mission and there's an actual child right here, right now, whether that's an infant in like a domestic private adoption or a child in another country or a child from foster care, a child that needs a family, needs care, and there are people willing to do that. In an ideal world, they, you know, biological parents would raise their biological children and that's the way it would work, but it doesn't always happen. People are sick, people die, people have addictions. Adoption is is a good, is is an undeniable good thing. I mean, I know, Gracie, you agree with me. I do. And we've talked about this, Lee, before that when we when we go to pro-life rallies, we, we hold and our adopted children hold those signs, those beautiful signs that say adoption is the loving option. And I think that sign says it all. Yes, the mm-hmm. ideal situation is each child grows up with their happily married mother and father that biologically conceived them. And that is the perfect, that's the perfect scenario. But life isn't perfect. And the loving option is to receive that child into the world and then quickly find a loving home for that child if, if his own mother and father can't care for him. And like you say, Lee, that's that comes from all sorts of different directions. It has been very sad to see adoption attacked in the media as some sort of like being as though Amy Coney Barrett, for instance, were presenting it as an idea, uh, idyllic fairy tale. Saw that in some in some attack piece. And I wanted to say, you know what? Adoption is an idyllic fairy tale. You have a child that needed to be rescued. The child was rescued out of love. And even though there was trauma... Happy ending. And it's a happy ending. There was trauma and sadness on the way to that happy ending. But, you know, fairy tales always are engaging in trauma and sadness and and then a rescue with a happy ending. So how wonderful to be involved in an idyllic fairy tale. I'm going to keep saying it's an idyllic fairy tale, even though there is some (laughs) sadness at the beginning. So ladies, thank you for joining me today. It was really, really fun to talk with you. There's so much to talk about. I feel we could go on forever. And these are your friends from the Catholic Association at Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for joining us. 
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. For this segment of the show, I will be co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Maureen Ferguson from the Catholic Association. And joining us now is the leader of the Boston Archdiocese Catholic Schools, an old friend of the show, Tom Carroll. He's been very busy the last couple of years keeping Catholic schools rolling amid the ongoing pandemic. And he's here to talk to us about a very sneaky provision the Biden administration is attempting to put into his budget, specifically the Build Back Better bill and how that directly impacts in a negative way Catholic schools, especially pre-K education. Thank you for joining us, Tom. Happy to be with you. Tom, the other day I was in D.C. in that big mess in front of the Supreme Court during the oral arguments uh, of Dobbs. But you were also in D.C. and you were testifying in front of the Senate about a very important issue that would concern people like us who were also concerned about what was going on in the Supreme Court. Tell us, please, tell our listeners about this issue that you were testifying about and why we should care. Yeah, and I actually was a few blocks away and I could hear the commotion at the Supreme Court. So I'm, I'm very excited that the uh, Dobbs case uh, is before the Supreme Court. And uh, certainly the comments of the justices seemed uh, favorable for the pro-life side. But it was a different challenge we had a couple blocks away, which is the Build Back Better uh, proposal that was passed by the House. This is President Biden's two trillion dollar bill uh, includes provisions, $400 billion for preschool and childcare funding from the federal government uh, to try to make it more universally available. From a Catholic perspective, uh, we have a big problem with the legislation, much in the way that the Hyde Amendment had been a matter of bipartisan consensus for many years until this year and then got tossed aside. There has been a consensus that religious liberty provisions would be included in funding on child care and education more generally. And after three decades of that bipartisan agreement among the presidency and both houses of the U.S. Congress flip-flopping back and forth over the last three decades, they're throwing it away in this bill. So what that practically means is if any Catholic school accepts money from this $400 billion for preschool or child care. And includes not just money directly from the federal money, because the money will come through states. So, for example, in Massachusetts, they have a voucher program for preschool that is funded a combination through federal and state money. So once that federal money is part of the Build Back Better money, suddenly all the religious protections that we have currently disappear. So and really basic things were, you know, it will affect our ability to to discriminate based on religion. Now, the word discriminate has a negative connotation for people. What that means, like, are we able to hire religion teachers who are practicing Catholics in a Catholic school or are the Orthodox Jews allowed to hire Jewish people to be teaching you know, Judaism? That's kind of a, a good discrimination, if you will, that you should be able to. We require that all of our principles and anyone who teaches religion be practicing Catholics consistent with the five precepts of the Catholic catechism, that would be imperiled. Similarly, crucifixes on the wall. It also uh, waives the religious liberty exemptions from Title IX. So what that means is Title IX prohibits uh, sex discrimination or gender discrimination. And you would say, well, who could be opposed to that, right? Or who could be in favor of discrimination? But that's what allows uh, private schools to have single gender um, education, meaning that you can, in a sense, discriminate in admissions so that an all boys school obviously only admits boys an all girls school only admits all girls. 
And so basically single gender education will be destroyed in a Catholic school context for any school that accepts the money. So the, the debate that's going around is one, we're very actively involved in the Archdiocese of Boston of talking to senators and other people uh, to make the case to restore the three decades of protections that we've always had. 52% of the seats for childcare and for pre-K are provided by religious institutions currently. So it's not only the question of we could not accept the money going forward, but people who currently have seats that are their courtesy of a religion and all the major religions, I suspect, will refuse to participate if we're basically asked to give up on, in our case, 2,000 years of church teaching in exchange for getting some federal dollars, we're sticking with the 2,000 years of church teaching. What that means is, in a Catholic sense, anybody who's been relying on child care or pre-K from Catholics, you know, that's contingent on the receipt of federal money, we're walking away. Similar to Obamacare, in which they said nobody will lose their health care, and a lot of people lost their health care, and a lot of the doctors that they wanted to have. Here, people are perfectly comfortable with their current child care or pre-K arrangements, could end up losing those arrangements if they're provided by religious providers. So the number of people in Massachusetts, 75 percent available parents and households are all the available parents and 75% of the households are working. So there's tremendous demand, much more than is being served right now for preschool and for childcare. So what they should be doing is trying to get everybody on board to get as many people possible trying to provide new seats. Instead, they're blowing up the childcare and the preschool market by knocking out more than half of the market by refusing to accommodate the First Amendment of the Constitution guaranteeing free exercise of religion. So, Tom, this is just another example of government policy that is not child-centered. It's not asking what's the best for the children involved. It's really all about imposing the agenda and the ideology of some progressive adults, really. And to give the context, this is part of the Build Back Better federal stimulus bill that the House has passed and the Senate has not taken it up yet. And the purpose of this provision of the bill is to increase options for child care and pre-K education, especially for struggling families that rely on two incomes. And yet this policy that they're seeking to impose would do the opposite. It would take you... You said 52% of providers in childcare and pre-K education are religious childcare providers. Well, 52% of the seats are from religious providers. That's according to uh, a statistic cited by the New York Times. Yes. So so it seems this policy will have the opposite effect of limiting options. (laughs) And and I watched your testimony at this roundtable and you called it a report from the field because you you run preschool programs, I think, that care for 6,000 children under age five. So I think you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And the the poorest of those kids, Maureen, are on state vouchers because they we could obviously run preschool except no government money and if we're in Wellesley or Brookline or some affluent area like there's plenty of money for people to pay for for whatever they want and that's similar to in the healthcare market a lot of doctors have opted out and people have a lot of money they just go private pay for all of the medical care so what's going to happen here is they're trying to they their ostensible purpose is to serve more children and to be more equitable by putting more money into the system 
so even people that don't have money can get access. But in reality, they're blowing up the access for low-income families because the people that in a lot of low-income neighborhoods and urban areas is mostly religious providers. And in rural areas, the dominant providers in most rural areas around the country are also religious providers. Do you think, Tom, that this is something that they're doing on purpose? I honestly don't know if it's an unintended consequence or it's on purpose. Senator Richard Burr at the same panel that I was testifying at was suggesting that in his view, this is exactly what they're trying to do, which is they're trying to drive religion out of this field and queue it up so that public providers dominate, much in the way that a lot of people in healthcare on that side are, are looking to have, you know, the kind of the public option be the dominant option. So okay. I, I don't really know. In terms of elected officials I've spoken with, including some people that are definitely on the progressive side, as you know, Massachusetts is a fairly politically progressive state. I don't think they're excited about the way this is playing out. I, I don't know who came up with this great, this mischievous idea of whether they realize the full implications of it. But when you pair it with the back of the Hyde Amendment, it makes one wonder what's going on here. And if you look at international affairs, or you look at the Hyde Amendment, or you look at uh, this issue about educational funding, there used to be in Washington a bipartisan consensus on a lot of issues that even as presidencies flip-flop back and forth, there were some things where the center held, and now everything's becoming hyper-partisan. Whoever's in charge wants to run their tables for, you know, their their team. Um, and there's no tolerance for other views at times. So here, I'm not arguing that every kid go to a Catholic school or they go to our pre-K or uh, our child care option. I don't really, you know, that's my view is I want a pluralistic set of options and I want parents to sort out. They want to go to a non-religious option. They'll pick one. They want to go to a public school. They want to go to a charter school. They want to go to a Catholic school, Jewish school, whatever. I think that's total or just a community-based nonprofit. I think if you're really trying to expand access, you should have lots and lots of options and let the parents sort all of that stuff out. I don't personally know the children that, you know, are going into all of these slots. I think we should let the parents decide all of this. And what they're doing is they're taking off the table a set of options that roughly half the parents in the country are benefiting from right now. And I don't understand the politics of going into a tough midterm election next year, alienating parents by blowing up. There are two issues that people care a lot about. One is who their doctor is, and they care about the education of their own children, things that are very intimate decisions. And I think they're making a big mistake um, if they don't correct this. Tom, you were you were musing earlier as to whether this is intentional. And I think you're I think you're very generous and charitable if you um, think that it may not be intentional, because I think in every provision uh, where they can, the Democrats are putting in language along these lines, tying all these strings to federal money in all different programs. And some Democrats have even written to Speaker Pelosi on this issue, making their intentions very clear. And, and the example that you were giving earlier of Obamacare, now the contraceptive mandate was not written explicitly into the legislation passed by Congress. There are some who wouldn't have voted for it in the first place if it were. The mandate on contraception came later through the regulations, through that, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services, the HHS mandate. So, um, so really, the devil is in the details, and you don't often see the details till later. But I think with this administration, we can be quite sure that that this is where they're going, this secularization. And, um, and just uh, this week, 
this issue, almost precisely this issue, was back before the Supreme Court with this Carson versus Macon decision, the the state of Maine disallowing yes. religious schools from this program. Can you fill our li- listeners in on that case? Yeah, so I've, I've actually been going to Maine since I was a little kid. And so I was surprised when I got older to realize that they have essentially a voucher program uh, school choice voucher program for at the high school level, and mostly because most terrain Maine outside of the coastal areas is rural, and so they don't have the density of population to have public schools in the way that you would in an urban or a suburban area. So, since they don't have the money, many towns don't have the money. Um, is they tuition? Um, they give tuition money basically to the parents to then take to a private school wherever they want. But Maine, like Vermont does not allow that money to be redeemed at, at a at a religious school. So you you have an option to go to a private school. So you have a private choice program, but it does not include religious institutions. So in the Trinity case where the Supreme Court a few years back, which actually involved kind of prosaically just uh, playground materials, uh, they ruled that you can have a government program that is generally available to everybody other than religious institutions. And so I think on this case, it's highly likely that they follow the line that they followed in the Trinity case, which went beyond just kind of the basic conservative liberal split that you usually see on the Supreme Court. So I think there's a pretty good consensus on the Supreme Court that if you have a program that's available, that has to be available to everybody. So the playground equipment was one thing. Obviously, this case is about the actual education of the kids out of school. So the stakes are much higher. But we also recently had the case basically invalidating the Blaine amendments uh, around the country, constitutional provisions that prohibited aid to private schools. So I think on generally on religious liberty issues, it helped largely with the, I don't know who's handling this, the Carson case, but most of the religious liberty victories have been done at the behest of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And they've won a string of Supreme Court cases. It's been an astonishing run of success. And so it's the one area in Supreme Court cases where there's been a pretty consistent line you know, even before Amy Coney Barrett was put on the Supreme Court, there's a consistent series of wins on religious liberty issues. So I'm optimistic on that one. But Tom, we only have a minute left. And, and I'd like you to tell us where the Build Back Better bill stands exactly legislatively, because I'm sure some of my listeners like me find it hard to keep track of how bills bounce around. And what our listeners can do to make their voices heard on this very important topic of schools? Yeah, right now it's passed the House with all Democratic votes. It's headed over to the U.S. Senate. And then the Senate often has a different point of view on legislation. There's no doubt that uh, 50 of the senators want to do some version of the Biden bill. It's unclear what Joe Manchin from West Virginia will end up deciding on this issue. So he could be the person who saves the day or... He could choose to use his leverage on some other issue we don't know. But the important thing, I think, to a person, the Republicans have lined up against this provision. They're strongly in favor of uh, going back to the bipartisan consensus. So the question is, you know, which Democrats will communicate to Chuck Schumer, who's the majority leader, and or threaten not to vote for the bill unless it's changed. So I don't think that anybody in the House is going to change their view on this. So I think the whole battle is anybody who uh, can reach out to a U.S. senator, you know, particularly on the Democratic side, because that's where this is going to end up getting decided. The Republicans don't have enough votes to decide the outcome here. 
you know, should reach out to the U.S. Senate and indicate that they want the, the re- same religious. We're not asked for anything extraordinary. We just want the same religious liberty protections that we've had for three decades under both parties reinstated for the preschool child care portion of Build Back Better. Well, thank you, Tom, for joining us. And I hope that our listeners, especially our listeners in Democratic states uh, with Democratic senators, will reach out to their senators and tell them exactly how we feel about religious liberty and about Catholic education, especially early Catholic education. That was Tom Carroll, leader of the Archdiocese of Boston Catholic Schools. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. It's for a second week, like we do every Advent, we go out to meet St. John the Baptist at the Jordan River. There, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness summons us to make straight the paths of the Lord, to lower the mountains of our pride, to fill up the valleys of spiritual minimalism, to straighten in our crooked ways and smooth our rough ones. People were walking 20 to 50 miles to meet John out in the middle of nowhere at the Jordan, some to investigate whether he was the Messiah, others sent by the religious authorities to evaluate him, most to listen to him with sincerity, be converted by him, and prepare for the coming of the Messiah whom he was announcing. As a result of John's powerful preaching, as we see at the beginning of this Sunday's Gospel, the crowds were moved to ask him to get practical about how to prepare the way for the Messiah. What then should we do, they asked. And he got very concrete. He called them to self-giving charity. Whoever has two cloaks should share with the person who has none, and whoever has food should do likewise. When despised tax collectors asked him the same question, he instructed them to stop collecting more than is prescribed and basically cease their greedy ways and the notorious shakedown to their own people to which they were accustomed. When even Roman soldiers present had their hearts pierced by his powerful words, that's what they had to do. He told them to practice justice rather than use their power for extortion, to tell the truth rather than falsely accuse, to be satisfied with their wages so that they would not be prey to corruption. We need to be just as practical when we hear John the Baptist's message each Advent. In our materialist age, in a culture of walk-in closets and storage bins, we're called to be generous in sharing our clothes, our food, our money with those in need, to avoid greed, to be just, to tell the truth, to be content with what we have rather than obsessed about more. We need to be willing to make a journey out into the desert, away from creaturely comforts, and with courage ask not John, but God in prayer, or even his earthly representatives in our parishes and dioceses, what then should I do? And then, as fruits of repentance and a desire for renewal in our faith, act on what God, through prayer, conscience, or his representative indicates. But John calls us further than asking for and making minor or major course corrections, as important as those are ultimately summons us to a new life, to a life-changing relationship with the one for whom he was preparing the way. He blared, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. I'm not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was preparing us for Jesus and for our living out the true meaning of Christian baptism. John's baptism at the Jordan was just a sign of the need for the forgiveness of sins in a new life. The baptism Jesus would inaugurate by the power of the Holy Spirit would actually accomplish that forgiveness and make possible that new life together with him, a life that rejects Satan, his empty promises and evil works, and lives consciously by faith in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communion with the Holy Catholic Church, forgiven by sin, risen with Christ, seeking eternal life. Jesus would come with fire, John indicated, to clear his threshing floor of chaff so that we might be free to live this new, fully Christian way of life. 
to live this way is ultimately the response to the question, what must I do to receive this gift, open it, and live by it, is what will make straight the paths, lower the mountains, and fill the valleys for. One of the most important characteristics of this new life being offered of the truly Christian life with Jesus is joy. This Sunday, the church celebrates Gaudete Sunday, taken from St. Paul's command to the Philippians that we'll hear in the second reading. Gaudete Semper in Domino. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Our vocation, our fundamental Christian mission is to be joyful. To highlight the importance of this calling, the priest will use rose vestments and light a rose candle rather than a purple one on the Advent wreath. A Christian who is not joyful is not just an oxymoron, but a false prophet. If we're not joyful, we advertise that the good news is maybe a lie. On the other hand, if we're filled with joy, the world will eventually bust down the doors of our churches to get in because our family, friends, neighbors, colleagues, fellow students are made for joy, don't have it, and consciously or unconsciously are seeking it in the midst of short-lived technological pleasures that can never deliver. If they see joy in us, they'll hunger to know why. They'll follow us to the source of our joy, who is Christ Jesus himself. One of the biggest challenges facing the church, Pope Francis has been saying over these last eight years, is that many Christians don't live our faith with joy. That's why in 2013 he wrote a beautiful exhortation called The Joy of the Gospel, since he said that joy fills the hearts and lives of those who encounter Jesus, who accept his offer of salvation and are set free from sin, sorrow, inner emptiness, and loneliness. But we must really encounter Jesus at the depth at which he, with joy, seeks to meet us. One of the problems for many of us is that we relate to Jesus mainly as a moral teacher, perhaps even a stern one, rather than one who said to us, I have come so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And who's also said, I've come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Many of us are not accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the most joyful person who ever lived. We don't imagine him laughing or smiling. Many times we picture Jesus as he was depicted in Franco Zeffirelli's 1977 film, Jesus of Nazareth, in which Robert Powell portrayed Jesus in a way in which Jesus seldom smiled and was, at least to me, lifeless. Back in 1975, St. Paul VI wrote a beautiful exhortation entitled Gaudete in Domino, taken from St. Paul's words this Sunday, which he went on at length about Jesus' continuous and contagious joy. He wrote that Jesus experienced our joys, celebrated a whole range of human joys, simple daily joys within the reach of everyone. He admires the birds of heaven, the lilies of the field. He immediately grasps God's attitude toward creation at the dawn of history. He willingly extols the joy of the sower and the harvester, the joy of the man who finds hidden treasure, the joy of the shepherd who recovers his sheep or the woman who finds her lost coin, the joy of those invited to the feast, the joy of a marriage celebration, joy of a father who embraces his son returning from a prodigal life, the joy of a woman who has just brought her child into the world. For Jesus, these joys are real because for him they're signs of the spiritual joys of the kingdom of God, the joy of people who enter this kingdom return there or work there, the joy of the father who welcomes them. And for his part, Jesus manifests his satisfaction and tenderness when he meets children wishing to approach him. A rich young man who's faithful and wants to do more. Friends who open their home to him like Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. His joy is above all to see the word of God accepted, the possessed delivered, sinful woman or Republican like Zacchaeus converted, a widow taking from her poverty and giving. He exults even with joy when he states that little ones have the revelation of the kingdom that remains hidden from the wise and the clever. Yes, Paul VI says, because Christ was a man like us in all things but sin. He accepted and experienced affective and spiritual joys as a gift of God. And he didn't rest until the poor he proclaimed the good news of salvation and to those in sorrow joy.
St. Paul VI doesn't stop there, but says, we have to understand properly the secret of the unfathomable joy that dwells in Jesus and that it's special to him. It's by reason of the inexpressible love by which Jesus knows he's loved by the Father. When he's baptized on the banks of the Jordan, this love which is present from the first moment of his incarnation is shown. You are my son, the beloved. My favor rests on you. This certitude is inseparable from Jesus' consciousness, Paul VI says. His joy came from his abiding in the love of the Father, and Jesus wants to communicate to us that joy by helping us to know and experience that love. At the same time, however, St. Paul VI makes plain that this joy is not some spiritual cotton candy. This Christ-like joy is a demanding joy because it begins with the Beatitudes. People today think joy comes from being rich, but Jesus says it comes from spiritual poverty. The world says it comes from comedians, but Jesus says it comes through mourning. The world says it comes from being popular and admired, but Jesus says real joy comes from being persecuted, reviled, and hated on his account. That's the path for us to rejoice and be glad, for our reward in heaven will be great. Christian joy, yes, is a demanding joy. We see this in Jesus' joy. In a mysterious way, Paul VI writes, Christ himself accepts death at the hands of the wicked and death on a cross. But the Father doesn't allow death to keep Jesus in its power. That's why the disciples were confirmed in an eradicable joy when they saw Jesus on Easter evening. And so Paul VI draws a conclusion. The joy of the kingdom brought to realization can only spring from the simultaneous celebration of the death and resurrection of the Lord. Neither trials nor sufferings have been eliminated from the world, but they take on new meaning in the certainty of sharing in the redemption wrought by the Lord and our sharing in His glory. Here below, this joy will always include, to a certain extent, the painful trial of a woman in labor and a certain apparent abandonment like that of the orphan. But the disciple's sadness, which is according to God, not according to the world, will be changed into a spiritual joy that no one will be able to take from them. So this Sunday, as we ask, what must I do? And John the Baptist gives us concrete orientation. We're summoned to rejoice always, to ask Jesus with his winnowing fan, to burn away whatever keeps us from recognizing the Father's love and Jesus' triumph, and there finding the ineradicable sense of Christian happiness, even in this world, a joy that begins always by encountering Jesus at the altar, where he enters within us with his body, blood, soul, and divinity, and joy. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 